Welcome back, 64 fans. I am your longtime host, David Visgon, coming at you live from Copenhagen, Denmark. And uh, it is about to be a res day tomorrow. So I'm recording this on December 1st. Happy December, everyone. And uh, I just want to talk about games four and five and kind of give my thoughts on how the match is going for uh, Magnus Carlsen and Jan Napomniachi. Uh, first of all, I want to thank my patrons on Patreon. You can check me out at 64podcast on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash 64podcast um, for the support. If you want to join, you want to support what you hear, support the work I do, go check that out. And uh, as usual, I want to thank my sponsor, AimChess, um, for all the love and support and for uh, doing another round of episodes with me. You can use uh, code DAVID30 to get 30% off your first month with AimChess and start looking at your advanced analytics today and you can also do your aim chess uh recap yearly recap for free so go check that out it's a lot of fun um i found out that uh my win loss rate for the first time ever was like below 50 percent, which kind of sucks but it is what it is um but yeah i just kind of want to give my unedited unfiltered thoughts um on this game just like uh just like a couple of days ago when i did the first three Although, if I'm being honest, I haven't found the, the last two games that interesting. Nevertheless, we'll, we'll dive in. And um, once again, I'm not trying to be too detailed about moves and stuff. I hope that you can just kind of put this on while you're doing your, your daily stuff and just kind of hear my, uh, my pats or thoughts on, on how the, the games are going. Because I've watched every minute of every single game so far that I don't think that's going to change um, to the chagrin of my employer. Um, so yeah, we'll get right into it. Uh, the first game that was yesterday is Magnus Carlsen with the white pieces, game four. And it was his birthday, so there are some questions around his birthday. Uh, he played on his birthday, I think the last, he played on his birthday against Caruana. He played on his birthday against Karyakin. I don't know if he played on his birthday for the other two, um, honestly. Maybe I should have done that research, but it is what it is. Um, but basically, it was E4, E5, uh, so Magnus did not stick to his, uh, his Catalan, which I think was, I guess, a surprise of sorts. And uh, after night F3, uh, the birthday present from Yana Pomniachi, even though he said no gifts uh, for his birthday, he plays uh, night F6. And uh, those of you who can't do the uh, notation in your head, um, E4, E5, night F3, night F6 is the Petrov defense. This was uh, successfully used by Fabiano Caruana in last uh, three years ago in the last World Chess Championship to completely neutralize Magnus's chances with E4. Uh, so Petrov, it has some love, has some hate. I know a lot of people who are maybe at more of the club level, they know that, uh, the Petrov can become the Stafford Gambit, um, which is a very aggressive, very sharp opening that you can get really quick wins with if, uh, if White doesn't know what they're doing. Um, and we basically got some classical variation of the Petrov. It was all pretty theoretical. Staunton variation, the Marshall variation of the classical attack with the Petrov, uh, for those of you who care. And actually, um, they didn't really deviate from theory too far up until I think it was move 18, uh, where Magnus played this novelty on move 18. He played uh, knight h4, I think. And knight h4, it had this very creative idea behind it, um, where he basically played... So typically, when you move your knight to the rim uh, in chess, they say knight on the rim is grim, knight on the rim is dim. Depends who you ask. I think that Dim is stupid, personally. I think Grim is kind of better, more, you know, suited for chess and whatnot. But Magnus deliberately puts his knight on the rim. And uh, after g6, which was uh, kind of to prevent its movement, he played this pawn push uh, g4. g4 is, pawn move to g4 is like my favorite move in chess. 
it, it's just a crazy, crazy move always to execute, especially without like the other pawns. Um, so like without F3 or H3, just to throw the pawn out. And he basically, where the G2 pawn was, he slid the knight back. And this whole little creative maneuver, Magnus said, uh, oh, you know, th there's some really complicated lines, and that's why he picked this. I don't really believe it. I mean, the queens were already traded very early. Only two minor pieces and rooks for each side. Uh, uh, Nepo had like a two-to-one pawn advantage on the queen side, so I'm not really sure how it could be that complicated. So it seemed like he was just kind of talking smack. Um, but the good thing about this line that he prepared was that uh, he had like a forced draw only a couple of moves later. Um, so Magnus wasn't really surprised that Nepo went with the Petrov. I mean, Nepo Miachi, he successfully used it during the candidates. Um, so, I mean, clearly now you have two world-class players already using it. So if you think that it's a bad opening, I mean, you're just not paying attention. Um, although you can see it, it kind of led to a very dry position. I mean, kind of all the life was, was already gone. And after some more maneuvering, some more trades, uh, basically Magnus had this forced draw. He sat at the board for like over an hour trying to find something a little more concrete, but he basically admitted at the press conference that already by like move 28, I think he had nothing. And so after 33 moves, it was a, it was a draw. Um, Magnus was down to like 20 minutes when they agreed to the draw. I think it was a threefold, but um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty quick game. Honestly, I think it wasn't more than like two hours. Um, it was, it was really pretty straightforward the whole time. Um, commentary was, was fine. I mean, there really wasn't really that much to say, honestly. It was a very interesting choice by Magnus, but um, Nepomniachtchi, he said at the press conference that he thought he had the entire game in his notes for his prep, the entire game. So, I mean, what does that tell you? It tells you that, you know, Magnus, he had this creative idea. Uh, Nepo knew the way out of the woods because he's very, very well prepared, and I'll talk about that a little more in a second um, after I talk a little bit about game five. Uh, but, yeah, Nepo is very well prepared, and... Uh, there wasn't really a surprise. And so um, that was basically game four. I mean, what does that actually tell you about the match strategy? It looks like Magnus is kind of going for, for lines that, that, that suit his kind of style, you know, queens off the board and to go for the, the signature Magnus squeeze. Although I think the thing about the Magnus squeeze that people don't really, you know, he's kind of been mythologized um, in this sense, is that typically Magnus, uh, he needs to rely on the kind of psychology. He needs he needs to know that, you know, his opponents are looking for something. Why he's gotten these crazy wins against like Rajabov and, and Nakamura against others, because usually those have been in situations where those guys need to win, or like, in, I guess in the Nakamura case, he has a huge like uh, mental advantage over him for whatever reason. He's in his head. I don't know exactly what it is. But basically, I think with someone like with Nepo, I don't think that history is really there. And Nepo is just playing solid chess. He's very well prepared. And so I, I, I think that Magnus, if he really wants to avoid the rapid, he is going to need to switch his strategy a little bit. Um, furthermore, I don't really think the lines that he's playing are really that convincing. And especially this this matters for the game that we had today. Um, because uh, Nepo had the white pieces today. So it was in December, a couple of hours ago, it was finished. Uh, he again opened with E4, E5. And we once again, for the third straight white game in a row, we got the Rui Lopez. Now, those of you who've been paying attention, you remember that Magnus originally had this novelty knight a5. Um, this time, they again had the a4 idea, and this time Magnus played... Uh, it was already a, a big deviation in theory, typically bishop b7, b4 in those positions. Uh, again, I'm not trying to get too in the weeds, um, but my point is, rather than to play something that is more well-known in terms of theory, he played uh, rook b8 on move 8. And I think the idea here is once again to kind of try and throw off uh, Nepo and see 
whether there are holes in his preparation in this in this E4, E5 stuff, because so far Nepo's looked very well prepared. I mean, game one, he avoided all the complications that even he was in a better position, but despite Magnus being down a pawn, he avoided all the possible complications. Counterplay got a nice quick draw, um, even though Magnus had some, maybe some small chances in game one, nothing really concrete. And then in game three, everybody has probably heard the statistic on Twitter or whatever that it was like the most accurate game according to Stockfish 14 neural net in like chess history, like in the world championship anyway. Like they had a centipon loss of like two and two and a half, I think, combined. Um, like on average, I should say. It was like three and two or something like insane. Um, so now he plays rook d8. So again, he's trying to kind of test, uh, you know, in this anti-marshal or Lopez, like what does Nepo actually have? And Nepo, again, looked very well prepared. Every move, every single move was the, was the best move. Um, he played h3 at one point, which is not a very common move, but the idea is very concrete, you know, just to kind of prevent any any counterplay with the light square bishop and also to strict uh, to strictly contain uh, Magnus's knight. So he had all this in preparation. He was basically playing with preparation. Magnus already was using a lot of time and, and uh, Nepo was basically in prep until I think move 20 or something. He barely, yeah. And, but, but this is actually what's interesting because um, the minute he got out of prep, he basically lost the whole advantage with one move. He played like a, he played like rookie, rookie ED one, uh, light square Bishop. That was his best piece got traded. Uh, everything got traded off and, and it petered out into draw a couple of moves later. Um, which is a little disappointing. I mean, yeah, he had a slight endgame advantage, but Magnus had a very easy way to hold, and he kind of just didn't look like he wanted to play. He looked very tired. Of course, Nepo also fell asleep during the press conference uh, in Game 4, so, you know, he's been working really hard on his chess, and uh, I'm sure he's he's been very exhausted from all this stuff, and uh, they found a repetition, and, and basically it was over move 43. It was a threefold repetition, and, and it is what it is. Uh so that was basically game five. I mean, it was another anti-martial Magnus. He accepted a slightly worse position for his strategy, uh, managed to hold. If you're with the black pieces in a world championship match and you hold, you're very happy because you want to always press with white. Um, so that's kind of where we're at with the games. Um, now, what does this mean for their individual strategies? Well, I think um, unlike games, so if you listen to the whole episode, and if you haven't, I encourage you to listen to this uh, these recaps that I'm doing and, and enjoy them because, you know, it's just fun for me to do. And I, I try to go kind of uh, casually in depth is what I've been calling it. <laughs> so um, anyway, I think like if you look at uh, Mag's strategy in the first three games, um, something has, has definitely maybe not changed, but I think maybe he's been figured out a little bit. Because I think what he's trying to do is very obvious. He's accepting worse positions again and again, um, hoping for counterplayer to get Ma- or to get Nepo out of his style. I think the problem with this approach is that um, it's very clear to me anyway that Nepo is not the player that he used to be. I don't know what kind of work he did like during the pandemic or you know during the break in the candidates, but he's become much more universal. He looks very comfortable in like positions that you know, Magnus would, would dream of having. Like, this position that Nepo got with the white pieces after move 19, I mean, that's like a signature Magnus Carlsen position. That's like the signature squeeze. Even the endgame position, when Nepo kind of gave up and just let it become more drawish, I mean, that these are the kind of positions that Magnus loves to play and loves to distract his opponents and wait for that time to strike. And uh, so it's, it's something weird with Magnus's approach. I think, again, if he wants to avoid, um, if he wants to avoid the rapid section 
Um, which maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just he's confident that that you know he can do the fourteen draws and and uh, draw and draw and draw and draw and then you know beat Nepo in the rapid. I think that's a little cocky because Nepo is much stronger as a rapid player than uh, than Kuryakin or Caruana, like by far. Uh, so it's a little cocky of him if that's what he's going for. Um, nevertheless, though, I've been very impressed with Nepo. Uh, very impressed. I think you know even though he had maybe some missed opportunities or whatever. Um, his, his preparation is fantastic. He's, he's been very much in his element. He hasn't really been, uh, ever been in pressure in this whole, whole match so far. So I think, uh, you know, Nepo, he's, he's definitely had some, uh, some, you know, the only, only thing about Nepo that I think is a little disheartening is, um, it's kind of like his approach almost like, for example, in this most recent game, he got out of prep and he immediately played the move that allowed for simplifications. Immediately. He didn't look for, for any kind of complications. He didn't look for any risks. He got the better position and then he just kind of respected Magnus as a player, said, okay, whatever, you know, I'm plus uh, 0.5 or whatever, you know, Grandmasters will say, oh, that's slightly better, whatever, and it is, but, um, you know, the, the engine I talked about is my last thing, how the engine can be uh, misleading uh, for a human. Nevertheless, not to get distracted, uh, you know, the minute he gets out of his, his prep and has to start thinking, the first move he plays is one that just allows big simplifications and boom, right into a draw. So basically on move 20, you know, you, you have this prep to, you, the whole point is for you to get an advantage with white and to try and press. And, and the first thing you do is kind of give up that, that to me is not really the heart of a champion. Um, and, and Magnus should, should be very, uh, very happy about that. Um, and, and even with, uh, you know, with, uh, with with the Petrov, I think you know he's just kind of trying to neutralize Magnus with e4, and it worked very well. So, you know, if if uh, Nepo's going to go, you know, Magnus has a white pieces uh, after the res day, and I wonder if he's going to stick with e4. He's probably just going to keep getting neutralized because it seems like everybody's got that figured out. So probably his best chances are with like d4 and c4. I mean, indeed, like that last, the crazy position we got in game two. I mean, that was really like a classic game, like a classic World Championship match, like game, very memorable. Um, but maybe both players are like, that's just too risky. And, you know, maybe we have another game like that and, and we're out of the, we're, we're out of contention. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, that's kind of the strategy here. I think Magnus is just kind of looking for, looking for imbalances and looking to kind of catch Nepo off guard, but it doesn't seem like Nepo's going to be caught off guard. He's not the player he used to be. And so I don't think Magnus can actually really rely on that, um, on that narrative. So I think, I think either he needs to kind of switch up the approach completely or, or just uh, try to get to the rapid and take your chances there. Um, and I don't think the latter really makes any sense at all. Um, I think the next thing I want to talk about is this. There's this a lot of discussion now about you know whether classical chess is dead or whatever. Because originally the games um, there's supposed to be twelve games in a match. That's how it's been for the last bunch of matches under FIDE, and uh, they've made it fourteen. I think that they're hoping that you know with two more games, there's a chance that there's going to be. Um, there's, there's a chance that there's going to be, I guess, like less draws or less percentage of draws, but, uh, I, I think that was kind of optimistic. So now people are, are always, you know, even it was kind of a little disrespectful at the press conference. They asked the players during this championship, if they should change the format, which I think was kind of stupid because it's a format that they're playing to, for the title. Like, I don't know. Imagine asking LeBron, like, like during like the finals, like, Hey, like, the finals format is pretty stupid, right? Like, we shouldn't have seven games. Like, nobody nobody is going to answer that, honestly, because you're going to look like a quitter if you say otherwise. So it was just a terrible question at the press conference. Um, 
nevertheless, I, I, I think like there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter and, and by the commentators about like how to make this more exciting for the fans. And now I'll tell you guys a story because I uh, last night I basically stayed up till 5 a.m. watching soccer. I'd watched the Leeds United uh, defeat Crystal Palace like in the last second um, at from like 9 p.m. And then I watched uh, NYCFC, the t- like the soccer team in, in New York City that I've been supporting for, you know, since since they became a team. Uh, they fo- they finally made it to the Eastern Conference Finals after like so many years of trying um, and always getting eliminated in the second round. And uh, I noticed that there's a real similarity between um, like chess and soccer. And uh, what do I mean by that? In that game that I watched, both teams had, I think, like 16 shots on goal. But the final score was like 2-2 and they went to penalties. So that's two shots made out of 16 taken. And typically, you know, in, in you know, at the highest levels of soccer or whatever, you know, if, if teams aren't going for like, you know, crazy tactics or they just park the bus a little bit or, you know, looking for, you know. But my point is you very often get like a 1-0 game in soccer. Now we take it to the World Chess Championship match, you know, we could very well have a scenario where one of the, you know, the challenger or the champion, they take one win in 14 matches and they keep the title. And um, the question is, do you want more decisive games or do you want uh, more memorable games uh, in, in the terms of legacy? Because I think with rapid games, you, you kind of will forget that, that I think the ideas in a rapid game are almost never as deep as in a classical game just because you have less time to prepare um, you know, you're, you're out of book a lot earlier, you're playing a lot quicker, your, your plans are not as deep. So very often, like the kind of positions you get will either be super crazy or they'll be, you know, pretty typical and somebody just loses on a blunder. I think what's nice about classical is typically, um, players don't really lose on, on like blunders. You really lose on like small inaccuracies or mistakes. I mean, it's a very high level chess. Um, the, the, the downside of course is that engines today, even compared to 10 years ago are about, a thousand elo stronger right like strongest engines and let's say the days of kramnik and anand were like maybe 2900 elo right now and you have engines competing in like the tcec um that are like uh 3700 3800 very conceivably like if we you know if we wait another 10 years engines are going to be 4000 plus elo coming up with these kind of opening ideas that we will never understand um so the question becomes do we change classical do we change the concept of a, of a classical world championship do we move to rapid do we go to 960 and i don't really know what the answer is but i'll tell you that i think that to change it purely for the sake of the spectators is wrong and i'll bring another example now there is a report that came out in baseball i don't know how many of you listen to ba- like watch baseball or like listen to baseball broadcasts or whatever but um a couple of months ago, I'm a New York Mets fan for many years, and um, the my favorite player on the Mets, Pete Alonso, basically made an accusation a couple of months ago saying that Major League Baseball had been juicing the baseballs to get more home runs so that more people would watch, to increase the hype, and also to affect the market values of people during free agency, specifically pitchers and like the star hitters. And... Basically, the whole media crucified him. They said it was unprofessional. He sounded like a conspiracy theorist. And sure enough, uh, like independent investigation found that Major League Baseball had not only had they changed the balls, but they had used two types of balls throughout the whole season and didn't even tell the players about that. So players were getting a different kind of ball depending on the game. And the natural conclusion is that basically Major League Baseball, the league, 
you know, for, for certain games like the, the Field of Dreams or the game in London, like, you know, they would probably use the baseball that was prone to getting hit a lot further. Um, I don't know all the specifics about, you know, baseball velocities and spins, all that stuff. I, I've never really known that much. But you can imagine that basically purely for the sake of hype and f- for the sake of, quote unquote, the fans or for interest, you know, they, they completely changed the game um, com- uh, like bypassing all this stuff with tradition and the natural evolution of the game. And uh, now players are furious. Probably going to have an extended lockout because just a huge distrust between the players and the league. And now we go look at FIDE. I don't want to get, you know, I think that FIDE, you know, we chess needs something like FIDE, of course. Like they need an organization like just to federate chess, <laughs> like to, to, to legislate things and to organize things. We need to have something like that. But knowing, you know, I talked on my podcast about, you know, the stuff with the breast implant sponsor and all these things. Do you really trust FIDE of all organizations to make the right changes for the sake of the format? I don't. I really don't. And I don't think I ever will. And, you know, I, that's not me trying to disrespect FIDE. Uh, it's just pure fact. Like, I don't think that they will know what the best solution is. I think they're just going to be making weird stuff with, the, with the, you know, this whole huge legacy of matches and stuff like that. Like, for example, some people have said that we should switch back to a tournament format. Right now we have a match format where you're, you're you know... You, you have the crown, the how heavy is the crown, Magnus? You know, you've had it for eight years. And now you have a guy who's who's coming to take your crown. How do you defend? Um, what's your strategy? But if you go to a tournament, then Magnus, every year or two years, is going to be playing in a tournament with the best players in the world. He could lose it. Somebody else can get it. There's a lot more variance, a lot more champions. There's less of a tradition to it. Um, so I personally am not a big fan. Even, you know, FIDE had actually had that for most of the 2000s. And, you know, there were players like Kalifman and Kazimjanov and Topalov, Anand, uh, Ruslan Panamaryov, uh, all of them were like FIDE world champions. And there are others too, I think. I think there's like a bunch, but that's my point. Most of you probably didn't even know that there was, uh, you know, it was a split title, of course, but it's it's kind of known that that title doesn't hold the same weight like a, like a match. There's something about a match and, you know, planning for a match and planning for a person that's that's really ingrained in, in chess. And I personally don't want to see that go away. Because I think, you know, match strategies are so much more interesting, like when you actually know the player and you're planning for a player. I think that's a lot more fascinating to watch as a spectator, despite the draws, despite all that other stuff. I think that's a lot more enjoyable for me personally anyway than um, tournaments. I think tournaments should be the road there. But at the end of the day, like I, the concept of, you know, a man on a mountain and, you know, coming for the crown... I really think that that's that's really cool. There's nothing really like that in, in any other sport. Um, so I don't know. I don't think it's it's that that should be changed. For me, I think that if you want to see more wins, I think that maybe you should decide the tiebreak before the match. Um, another thing you could do is just have it how it used to be, where if the match is drawn after you know twelve games, fourteen games, whatever, then the champion just retains the crown. And so, you know, whenever the champion ends up being, whenever it's their time to go, basically, um, you know, they make a blunder and, and that's it. You can imagine that basically the champion will just play very drawish stuff again and again and again to try and hold that crown. And maybe you have to find imbalances and find the psychology behind that. Um, but I think that would be another way to at least make something interesting. And then I guess really what I would say is to me, 
the only thing that would really change the amount of draws and whatnot is like switching to 960 because 960 um i mean yes there are problems with the format too in terms of you know how in some 960 positions white can be way better like from the starting move than others at least from what i understand um so maybe you have to prune some of those positions but nevertheless like uh you have much less theory you can't rely on computers for prep it's just you're just playing chess basically you're playing chess on principles and knowledge rather than you know how much engine lines you can memorize with the team of super grandmasters so those i think are like the three of the solutions but i i do think classical chess has a place i mean the fact that engines can still beat each other at 3800 with the same openings that we learned means that you know classical chess isn't dead yet um, because certainly if there's enough imbalances to lose at a 3,800 level, then I'm sure the similar openings at a thousand ELO lower can give you even more chances. So I'm not ready to quit on classical chess yet at all. Um, but I will say like, you know, the spectators do matter on the other hand, it is kind of important that you have people that like, you know, want to watch chess and whatnot. Um, but I don't know, like, do people really find, uh, do they find it boring because I think that of all the games that we've had, only, I would say, games... Yeah, I mean, really, like, games three and four have been boring, I guess. Um, game five didn't have to be boring. I didn't think it was boring. I thought it was, you know, Nepo, Nepo showed how prepared he was. But again, like, in these matches, it's it's not really about, like, wins in the same way. You don't, you, you're not... You know you're not going to get, uh, you know... You're not going to blank somebody with six wins in the World Chess Championship. You're looking for holes in prep. You're looking for gaps. You're looking to induce mistakes. It's a lot like soccer. Like, you know, you, you're not going to win, virtually never going to win a game by, you know, 10-0. That doesn't happen. You're going to win a game by one or two goals because, especially at the, high, you know, at the highest level, teams know how to defend. They know how to attack. And so you're looking for counterplay. You're looking for the wing attacks. You're looking for the deep crosses. You're looking for... You're looking for when your uh, opponent might overpress. Like, that's the kind of advanced tactics, right? And that's over the course of 90 minutes instead of, you know, 14 games that are three hours long. Sure, but um, the, the principle is the same. Or it's like baseball. You know, it's like uh, like every draw is basically like a long version of like when somebody has a home run and then an outfielder comes and makes a spectacular catch. You know, that's like a good draw you know, and, and eventually somebody does score. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm more of a traditionalist. I, I, I think that, you know, even if there were really a, a time for a change, I don't think that FIDE is, is the right place to do it in like 2023 or whatever. I think that it, it's really something that needs to be changed slowly over time um, with the approval of all the players. I mean, Magnus himself has talked about changing the format, so it, I don't even think it would be that difficult. But he, his vision for a change of the format is that a real-world chess championship should be good at all forms of chess, which he is. He's the GOAT in classical. I'm just talking at least in terms of pure ability, not in terms of, like, dominance or whatever. Um, he's the GOAT in, in classical. He's a GOAT probably in rapid. Debatably the GOAT in blitz as well, um, though there are other guys who, who, who could be up there too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Change of the format... That's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, I think the, the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, is the, kind of the bizarre nature of the post-game conferences. 
because you watch these things, you get the recap on whatever, you know, whether you're watching on Chess24 or Chess.com or, you know, Hikaru's thing or whatever, wherever you're watching these things. Or Vasily Ivanchuk apparently is streaming on Twitch. I retweeted uh, Fide Master Nate Stallone uh, today. And uh, then I saw he had like 10 viewers when I clicked. And then an hour later, he had like 500 viewers or something asking him a bunch of questions. And he, he like he had literally had like 300 followers on Twitch. Apparently, I think he'd been streaming a little while before, so just nobody knew. And I think now his his Twitch account is blown up. I found his his Lee Chess account, so maybe I'll try to get him on the podcast if he's interested. Um, he's probably not, but you know, I'll try. <laughs> um, in any case, wherever you're watching the the stream, so you get your little recap, and then almost all of them switch to the press conference after. And I mean, the press conferences have been horrible. You know, we talk about chess as a sport. I mean, if you compare the questions that people get asked at like an NBA press conference, let's say, to like what the players are getting asked, I mean, it's just huge gap. First of all, I feel really bad for Nepo. Barely anybody asks him anything except for like one of the, except for like the the Russian uh, press reporter, and the uh, like the the questions that are addressed to both of them. He barely gets any question. All the attention is on Magnus, which I think is kind of a pity because. Jan is doing really freaking well. He's doing really freaking well. Like, I, you know, there's things to be said about, like, whether like, maybe he's scared to overpress or he's scared to kind of go for complications, but he's getting great positions. He's getting Magnus out of out of his element in the positions that Magnus basically invites him into, like with his Rook B8 or whether it's Rook B8 or, or with his other line in the anti-marshal that he went for, like... Uh, you know, he, Nepo is getting these kinds of interesting positions. Magnus does defend precisely because, you know, he's the GOAT. But still, Jan, he could overpress. But nevertheless, I mean, he gets no questions. And, I mean, some of the questions that, 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 that are asked are just bizarre. Somebody asked about, on Magnus's birthday, about Winston Churchill quotes because they share a birthday. Like, what kind of freaking question is that? Like, What? it's like it's there's zero connection between that and the game it's not you know you're not going to get any profound quotes about that these guys are are tired they just like want to you know just go home and and prepare for the next game like don't waste their time um i also think that they that, that magnus and magnus and jan have been very um they've been very gracious to the press too uh they've 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 really They've answered all, you know, all the questions kind of in depth. Uh, you know, they 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 they've been good to the press. You don't really see that in American sports these days. Like, uh, kind of the there's a lot of hostility now between players and, and the media and like say basketball or football. So, that that's very respectable. I mean, Jan was literally falling asleep game four. He literally fell asleep. He took a nap at the board and then he uh, he like <laughs> passed out during the press conference. I mean, this man is tired. He's he's fighting. You know, he's really fighting. Um. Yeah, I mean that's that's basically something I just want to talk about. That's so kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, um, let me know on Twitter if you think uh, classical chess is dying. Let's start a conversation. Um, I don't think so. I mean, the fact that Ali Reza can still smoke twenty six hundreds, you know, it means that at least until you get to the twenty seven hundred plus level, like there's it's not dead. It's not going away anytime soon. And you know, what's funny is you know most of the people who uh, who are looking for like the, you know, they, they're looking for 12 wins or whatever. Okay, but like, the, these are the kind of people who don't watch the wins anyway. So, you know, they're saying, oh, there's too many draws. And then they're actually the exciting games and they, they don't watch them anyway. So, 
I think uh, the best way, I guess this is how I'll conclude. If you think that there are too many draws, or, you know, for, first of all, you can always uh, get your recaps of the games later. Um, and that's still, you know, part of the content wheel. But I also think, like, uh, honestly, um, some of these streams, uh, you can really just kind of put them on, like, while you work. Certainly, like, once the games have been getting a little dry, like Game 3, Game 4, um, Game 5, past the halfway mark, like, once it got to those points for me, I kind of just, I don't know, I put in the background. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just put in the background. I do my work that I need to do, my, my coding or my writing or whatever, and... Uh, yeah, and, you know, it's kind of like a podcast. There isn't a move being made in, like, 30 minutes. Fabiano, for example, on the chess.com broadcast, he's pretty funny, actually. He's made some pretty pretty good remarks. Um, so, yeah, that, I don't know. I think that you don't have to, like, watch super attentively. As somebody who's watched basically very attentively for every single minute of all the matches, except for, like, you know, when I need to go out to get food or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just that. Maybe that's the trick. Like, maybe the way we consider, um, like how we absorb these games. Maybe we're so used to it from at least as Americans or, you know, let's say like f British uh, football fans. Uh, you know, I'm talking about like the European way of saying soccer, football, not not American football. Um, but maybe like our whole concept of watching a sport uh, kind of affects the way we we treat these matches, which are a lot more of a slow burn. It's a lot more of a you know, trying to induce small weaknesses and trying to capitalize on that. It's it's a different kind of uh, event. And it's been like this for, you know, well over 100 years. So, I don't know. I still find it interesting. I don't want the ball to stop uh, in, you know, our generation's court. And hopefully other people feel the same way. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of, that's my little recap in short. Uh, Nepo's prep has been very impressive. I kind of wish he'd press a little more you know, out of getting these, these, these positions, particularly game five. Um, and even in, I mean, in game three, he, he kind of went down the path where it was just a lot of simplifications. And I think he could have, he could have tried to, he was in the driver's seat, right? So, um, don't let Magnus like neutralize so easily, but okay. I mean, it is what it is. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, thanks for listening to me ramble about, uh, world chess championship again for over half an hour, uh, wherever you are in the world. I hope you're doing well. I hope you are uh, staying safe um, and happy December. Like I said, if you like what you heard, you can give me a little shout out on Twitter at 64 podcast. Give me a follow. Um, let me know what you think about these episodes. Um, do it for the fans. Just do it for fun. Um, like I said, a little time capsule for what I was thinking about these matches. Who knows how these are going to be seen or whether my evaluations on, you know, the strategy are going to be correct, you know, when they have their, you know, post-mortem interviews or whatever. But um, just, I'm kind of telling it how I see it as some, you know, pretty mediocre club player. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so follow me on Twitter. If you like what you heard, if you want to ask questions, actually, um, give me a, uh, a shout on Patreon, you know, Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash 64 podcast, uh, for $3 or more a month. Um, you will be part of the 64 inbox. You can ask questions that'll be featured on the show, whether it's with guests or with, you know, one-off things like this. Um, you can get involved in the show that way. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And uh, yeah, so thanks so much for listening. I want to give one last shout out to uh, Patreon Platinum uh, subscriber, Paul Harbright, once again from Australia. Thanks so much for the support. And um, 
Thanks AimChess for sponsoring me as always. You can use code David30 to get 30% off your first month with AimChess. Check out their prediction challenge at magnusnepo.com. And uh, they've told me they've had some exciting stuff coming out at the end of the month, so stay tuned for that. And uh, it's a lot of fun to record. I hope you enjoyed listening, and uh, I'll be back uh, for the next rest day. So take it easy.